Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to CommonwealthClub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. It's wonderful to see you all. My name is Richard Rubin. I am the chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and I am your chair today for this program. And now, I am extremely pleased to introduce our distinguished senator and speaker, California senior U.S. Senator, Dianne Feinstein. Dianne Feinstein has served in the Senate for 25 years, almost and her career has been one of firsts. Let me just tick off a few of these accomplishments. She was the first woman ever elected U.S. Senator from this state, from California. She was the first woman to assume the chairmanship of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, of which she is the current vice chair. She was the first woman to serve on the Senate Judiciary, the Intelligence Committee, and the Rules Committee. And before joining the Senate, As you know, she was the first woman to be the mayor of the wonderful city of San Francisco. Over the years, Senator Feinstein has emphasized issues of national security, combating crime, and protecting California's natural resources. She has also established a reputation for working across the aisle. That is no mean feat in this era of polarization. Her contributions, to the welfare of this state and our nation are inestimable. Today, we are pleased that Senator Feinstein will be in conversation with the Honorable Ellen Tauscher. Ellen is the former seven-term U.S. Congressional Representative from California's 10th District across the Bay. She's the former Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security under President Obama. And I am pleased to say she is a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. In the interest of full disclosure, Ms. Tauscher has been involved in some of the Senator's campaigns and knows her very well. For a discussion about the current state of America and the world, please give a great welcome to Senator Dianne Feinstein and the Honorable Ellen Tauscher. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, Senator Feinstein. The Congress is going to be very busy when you go back in September. You're going to have uh, a number of different things you have to pass, including the budget. What do you see happening when you get back, and what are the priorities going to be? Well, I think we've got a number of technical things. We've got the debt limit. And the debt limit, ladies and gentlemen, is pretty simple. You know, if you've gone out and charged on your account, you have to pay the bill. And the debt limit essentially adjusts the level of spending uh, that the president is allowed under the Congress. And that, for some, will be something to um, negotiate. And the reason is that the debt limit is so simple that people ought to just raise the debt limit. And I think that's what's actually going to happen. Uh, There's talk of the president using it uh, to get the wall. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Texas takes the place of the wall, and I think America would much rather contribute their tax monies to the rehabilitation of Texas Texas. and uh, uh, all that 1,600 square miles than another wall on our border. So that's... 
I think that's the first thing. Then there are a number of authorizations that expire that have big authorizations that have to be renewed. Um, then something that we're all watching for is the pr president has said different things about a program called DACA, yes. um, which is 800,000 children that have been brought to this country first coming in 2007. They have to have been here from 2007. Uh, they go to school. Uh, they're called dreamers, and they want to stay in America. And under DACA, they get a work permit and a time provided they are attending school, working, uh, being good citizens. I very much believe in this program. And the hope is that the president will allow it to continue and support the passage of a law which will make it legal. We have about 800,000 dreamers in this country. 300,000 of which it's estimated are in California alone. So I just met with a family that, of, of young girls. One had graduated from one of the California uh, universities. The next one was, uh, was there. And it, it's such an inspiration. And these young people so want to be Americans, and they want to work, and they want to improve this country. So I hope you'll all support us and write a letter to the president and say, leave these children alone. Let's pass a law that makes this program legal for always. This was the Sanchez family of Oakland, and these were the, this was the family that was deported. Uh, above your objection. Um, I know that you interceded on that, but this is a tragedy. This was a woman that was an oncology nurse, and her, and her husband was a truck driver. And their children, uh, their youngest son was born in the United States, but the, the other two are dreamers. Um, the president is threatening to take DACA away in the next few weeks. Do you think perhaps what's happening in Texas is going to change what his agenda and his threats have been over the last Yes, I, I think it will, because I think this rehabilitation is going to be long and painful. A lot of people are missing. Um, we just saw a sergeant in the Houston Police Department, 32 years of service, who lost his life by drowning in a squad car at four in the morning trying to get to work. And this family today they all drowned when the van went out of control. They were in and sunk, and they, ah, oh, they couldn't get out. And I think the heart of America is really in Texas now. I think CNN has done a wonderful job yeah. in coverage, and I think what it shows is really what America is, that we care. We care about people, and we care about each other. And I think where this president needs to work is to bring people together. That's what a president does. You don't divide. You bring this nation, you know, one nation, indivisible, under God, together. And I hope he'll begin to do that because it's long overdue. Well, you know, you've known, been known throughout your career um, for having a bipartisan approach to politics. Uh, this is one of our online constituent questions. Um, this person wants to know, what are your secrets to working? What are my what? Your secrets to working in a bipartisan way. Oh. <laughs> well, <clears throat> look, we're a two-party system, essentially. We're Republicans and Democrats. And the Congress is usually divided, Republican, Democrats. Of course, there are independents, and independents generally choose to be with one party or the other in the Senate. Well, what that means is when you have a bill, and you're either the chairman or the ranking member of the subcommittee or the committee, you have to sit down and work out difficult parts of that bill, which means you've got to be able to negotiate. And, that's, and you've got to be able to compromise. And compromise, ladies and gentlemen, isn't a dirty word. Compromise is what moves this government forward. Close, we won't ever probably have a consensus, 
but we will have strong majorities. And if those strong majorities are bipartisan, the, the decision stands much more strongly than if it is just the decision of one party and then the next party comes into power and undoes that decision, which is now a good deal of what is going on with this president spending his time trying to undo executive orders that President Obama um, put forward. So it's not an easy time, and for most of us, who have served under other presidents. I've been there 24 years. I've served under Republican presidents. I've served under Democratic presidents. But I could always count on a level of stability, on a level of comedy, on a, letter, a level... Um, I remember traveling with um, George Bush out to a big fire in Southern California and he came back and sat in the back of the plane, and we talked for two and a half hours on the way out. And I saw him go up and down the lines of firefighters exhausted. This was a big fire in subdivisions in the San Diego area. And, um, you know, I was so proud of him. 1,100 firefighters, he thanked them all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm proud, and I happen to be a Democrat, and he happens to be a Republican. That doesn't always make a huge difference. It's the heart of the man or woman. It's the mind of the man or woman. It's how much they want to get a project passed, <clears throat> a bill that they really believe in, a change that's going to be made in this country that you can sit down and negotiate it. And this is what we have always done. And it works. Um, the Tea Party came. The Tea Party, if they don't get their way, then they're not going to be for it. And you know that in the yes. House, because that's, mm -hmm. that, that's where they are. And I just find that really so difficult to, to deal with, because they're such big issues. The war, peace, right. you know, we've got North Korea, we've got Afghanistan, we've got the Middle East. Plus, we have health care reform, we've got tax reform. And the only way you get there is by sitting down with the opposite party and working out the differences. Speaking of North Korea, um, one of our online constituents asked, if you were President Trump, we know you're not. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> How would you handle the North Korea situation? Well, this is an interesting one. We have 28,000 troops uh, at the DMZ on the South Korean side, their families also in Seoul. Um, the North Koreans have 750,000 troops. If you stand at the demilitarized de de zone, which is 25, a 25 minute drive from Seoul, you see a big flat plain and mountains in the background. The 750,000 North Korean troops are behind those mountains. In those mountains are rocket missile emplacements. They've been working on this for decades. And so here is the issue. The issue is that this particular leader, Kim Jong-un, has engaged in a mil missile development program far beyond what his father did. Right. And these intercontinental ballistic missiles will one day, they will miniaturize a warhead, and one day they will solve the problem of reentry from space back. But we know they can hit about half of the United States right. based on the trajectory that this last missile went up. We also know that they are hidden deep underground. And the difficulty is being able to get to them to disable them. Um, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, came over and we sat in the secure room in intelligence and he sort of took, it, took me through it mm -hmm. and why there was really no military scenario. Right. So what we have to do is encourage them to negotiate. 
now. Think about this. Do, you, do you, we really think we can isolate nations and that they will do better or come around because we isolate them? I don't think that's right. And my experience has been that it isn't. Whether that nation is Iran, whether that nation is North Korea, I would hope that we would be prepared to sit at a table in direct negotiations with the help of the Chinese. No more six-party talk, talks right. because they didn't get anywhere. But really put forward a proposal that could take North Korea out of this isolationism, bring it into the community of nations with certain standards that they would agree to follow. And then we can solve this problem. But if you shine a light at night, or if you look down at night on the two Koreas, the South is blooming with lights from the air. The North has no electricity. People no don't have adequate food. No. And starving. it's a nation that happens to have, because they have taken it on, the development of very sophisticated weaponry. And they have done it well. Yes, they've stolen from everybody. And you know this stuff too, Unfortunately, so you I know do. that. Yeah. We'll be back with more here on John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. So, no, it's, it's an enormously dangerous proposition, but I think your point is very well taken. We have to exhaust diplomacy anyhow before we ever use military force. But we don't even have a military option here because they've gotten ahead of us. They've hidden everything underground. They've made it impossible for us. And the proximity to the Republic of Korea and Japan makes it almost impossible to use a military option. Uh, well, maybe the president was listening, and he can take up what you've offered. <laughs> president Trump's comments after the tragic events in Charlottesville were widely condemned. Can you talk to us about your reaction to them? Oh, Charlottesville was something that I never thought would happen. I never thought we would see those lighted torches, the black uniforms, walking through a very prominent university campus with an anti-Semitic screed on their lips. Right. And then to see what happened the next day. And I think I, I, so terrible. And the hatred between those, the people was so devastating to many of us that really believed that we were beyond this racial discrimination, religious discrimination, hate, Ku Klux Klan, uh, American Nazis, white supremacists. And fortunately, uh, you know, in the 
nine years I was mayor and the nine years I served in the Board of Supervisors here, this city is free of that. This city really appreciates different people mm -hmm. and different talents and what they bring. And so we are so lucky to live here and not see, and we, we almost came close to it last weekend, but yes. fortunately discretion was the better part of their activity and they, they withdrew. Um, so I think, I, I think the president's statement was that he tried to placate both sides. You cannot placate American Nazis. You cannot placate... <laughs> you cannot placate white supremacists. You cannot placate the KKK. And that was the mix. And to say, well, there are nice people on both sides was a lightning rod to dissent. And that's what happened. All right. Um, I have to ask one more uh, timely question about the president tweeting his pardon for former Sheriff Joe, Joe Arpaio. I just wanted to know your reaction to that. Well, I was mayor in this city when the first discussions on racial profiling took place. And um, for police departments, this was a huge issue, an internal issue because they believe they look at people and they can make certain judgments based on how they look. I won't go into it because it's all bad, but sometimes they're right, more often they're wrong, and it's against the law. Arpaio, this sheriff, was just a terrible sheriff. And what, without even waiting for the court sentencing, a federal court to sentence this man, the president pardoned him, which in my view sent a message to police departments all over the world, or, and particularly in our country, that racial profiling is okay. And ladies and gentlemen, it isn't. And <laughs> so, that was, that was my concern about what he did. I, I just thought it was a stupid thing to do then. So you're the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee and also a member of the Intelligence Committee. Um, there are multiple investigations uh, into what's going on, what had happened in the 16 election with the uh, Russian interference. Uh, and um, now there's also potential obstruction of justice um, I think Don Jr. is coming to talk to the Judiciary Committee in September. Can you just give us um, kind of a, a sense of the state of things and well, where you think I things are going? I can give you a sense of the state of play, but that, that's about it. Um, the Intelligence Committee is doing um, work in the arena of intelligence. And the Judiciary Committee, of which I am ranking, is looking at the justice-related issues. Um, and of course, that would be obstruction of justice. It would be the issue of collusion with Russia. And um, so what has happened is uh, the chairman, uh, Senator Grassley and I, I think work well together. Um, he is a very direct person, which I appreciate. He's got a very good sense of what's right and wrong. And I find um, he gives me a yes or a no, and I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't finesse. He, he says what he thinks, and I think that's a very positive thing. So we have worked out a system where thousands of documents have now been collected. Uh, we have a staff. Um, on the Democratic side, we are in the process of hiring a couple of investigators, and the staff will be conducting uh, interviews. They've done one of one person, and they will be interviewing uh, both Donald Trump Jr. as well as Mr. Manafort, uh, likely uh, soon. And then we will have them before the full committee. And it's important because they say they want to cooperate. 
And that means we have to be able to elicit information from them. And in this kind of a situation, if you lie, you commit a kind of perjury. You don't have to take an oath, but if you lie in an official investigation, in an interview, or um, before our committee, <laughs> you're in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. So I th the way that people are encouraged to give you that information is by knowing that certain th they are protected in certain areas. That's right. And that's what we are trying to do right now uh, with our staff to see if we can gain certain information. So uh, lots of good questions here. The Trump presidency has unleashed an unprecedented wave of activism in the country, uh, with everyday Americans much more engaged with their elected officials. Um, how have you and your office responded um, and how do you, as a senior senator of the largest state, stay connected with your constituents? We have gotten three or four million calls, letters into our office. It's double last year. So you're right. The activism that's out there is dramatic. And um, I think what people need to do is make that activism consequential. And I've been trying to figure out how to do it. And it really is, I encourage people, and particularly women, to run for public office, begin run for a school board, run for a city council, develop uh, your expertise, develop your credentials so you can present yourself to the electorate as someone that's really worthy of um, being a House member, being a United States Senator, whatever, whatever it is, and start out that way because we really need informed people that really care in government, not mm -hmm. people who just see it politically, mm -hmm. but really do want to solve the issues that are before us. Healthcare is an enormous kind of conundrum here, handled improperly, many of us think, by the opposition, by, by at least the party that's opposite to my party. And you can't do a big bill. They can't do tax reform, in my view, just with Republicans. They can't do healthcare reform just with Republicans. The big bills which affect everyone's life, ladies and gentlemen, both political parties have to have a part of. And then the bill is generally going to be okay. Substantial, okay, going to meet the needs of people as well as business or any other area of human endeavor. So the so-called repeal and replace is stalled in the House. The Senate wouldn't pass it. Uh, next week, there'll be the first bipartisan hearings on strengthening and stabilizing the individual insurance markets, which are collapsing because of the uncertainty that repeal and replace put in the marketplaces over the last two or three years. Um, are you hopeful that we can find a bipartisan solution to stabilize the markets? And what do you, what do you think might be happening? Are you, do you have anything that you're well, going to propose? Yeah. The majority of calls that we've gotten, and um, I would say there are tens of thousands on health care, has had to do with the individual marketplace. Now, the individual marketplace is that you buy your own health care plan. Uh, it's Kaiser Permanente, it's uh, Blue Shield, it's whatever it is but you're in the market for your own plan. What the government does is if you make below the poverty rate, which is $47,500, you get an income tax rebate subsidy to be able to lessen your premium cost. But if you make $1 over $47,000, you don't. So if you make 50,000, let's say you're a single woman, Let's say you're 50 and you make $50,000, just to make it sort of symmetrical, you make $50,000 a year. To get insurance in this state, according to Covered California, you would have to pay $800 a month for it. That's 20% of your income. So what we have done 
is we have removed that cliff and we have said we're going to go to percent of income. And the percent is that no policy can cost you more than 9.69% of whatever your income is. In that way, we stretch, uh, I hope people, we stretch out the cliff exactly. that you drop off of mm -hmm. and we extend it so that it goes like that That's right. and merges, which the, um, the analysis is that it'll bring 1.2 million additional people into the market and many of them will be healthier, which will result in lower rates too. And the subsidies that the president uh, is threatening to get rid of, um, are there going to be a sense that the subsidies are once again going to be stabilized so people can count on them going into the future? Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, I met today with the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and that was one of the points that he was making uh, with respect to something that would get more insurance companies into the marketplace. In some places, you only have one insurance company, and in others, you don't have any that are willing. So the key is we've got to find ways to encourage um, the private sector, and then to keep premiums low, I'm one that would support a public option, and that would be competitive. We've had a few questions about people that were um, present listening on live radio. Uh, I'm not going to ask this question. She doesn't like the question. Well, it, it's, it's a question I think a lot of people are curious about because of um, the fact that you were there when Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk were murdered. But I know that it's personally upsetting for you. This person wants to know, how did it shape your future? Oh, wow. Well, it took me a very long time. <clears throat> it took me about six years into my mayorality to be able to sit in the chair where George Moscone was sitting when he was shot and killed. Um, as many of you know, I was the one that found Harvey's body and tried to get a pulse and put my finger into a bullet hole when he tried to shield himself. The perpetrator was a colleague of mine. And what it was is it's kind of political gamesmanship, uh, stress, um, all these things that enter in when somebody really isn't able to handle the job at hand. I knew Dan White, he was the perpetrator, very well. He was a policeman, he was a firefighter, he was married, he had a wonderful wife, he was struggling to <clears throat> make money at the time, he paid the board very little, and there was a lot of stress, and he resigned. The body that supported him was the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, police department, fire department, and they said, why did you do this? You know, you're our sixth vote. You can't do that. So he tried to get the job back, and Mayor Moscone had, was going to appoint somebody else, and did. And, um, oh, it brings back just, well, sorry. you asked that question. Um, it brings back just a terrible, terrible time of a city just rent asunder, of hate running wild, and um, just, just a terrible, terrible time. And it was my job to try to put the bricks back together again, which I think over a couple of years we were able to do. And um, then uh, uh, the great symbol that we were there was uh, 1981 and the glory days of the 49ers, um, when I never thought I'd see a million people in the streets, and yet they were, and they were hanging from lampposts and in buildings, and the whole city came together over 
the San Francisco 49ers winning the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting as I look back at how different things work in a city, how what brings people together in kind of a common cause of, um, for some it may be opera, it may be symphony, it may be a good lecture, it may be a priest, it may be a cleric, who knows? But I never thought it was professional sports. <laughs> <laughs> and but in it, fact, it, look at the giants. <laughs> but so, it did shape your position on uh, gun violence. Well. Yeah, gun, gun violence, um, when I went back, it was really 101 California Street. Yes. And that shooting, oh, I remember his name, John Luigi Ferry, mm -hmm. a disgruntled client in a law firm, walked in with a sack full of weapons and ammunition and began just shooting people. And I met with some of the victims afterwards and decided that I had to try to do an assault weapons ban, that these are weapons of war, that they shouldn't be on the streets. And it's a long story, but this is the way the Senate was in those days. Um, I told Joe Biden, who had authored the crime bill, I said, Joe, I'm going to do an assault weapons bill on your crime bill. I said it in the cloakroom, and he laughed at me. <laughs> and he said, just wait till the gunners get to you, Diane. You're new here, you'll see what happens. And um, so we had it out on the floor. There was no cloture vote, which there are now, which takes 60 votes to get to any controversial matter. There was a motion to table Bob Dole, who was the Republican leader, stood up and said, <clears throat> this is an important bill. We should discuss it and vote on it. And um, we did. And we won the motion to table by one vote. And then the bill passed with 56 votes in the Senate. Schumer took it in the House. President Clinton got involved. And it got pushed through. Mm -hmm and became law. The problem with it was, in order to get the votes, I had to sunset it. Yes. Sunset means that you have to either, either it stops after 10 years or um, you renew it. And so the bill sunset, and that was the big mistake because by then the Senate had changed Yes. and you were never gonna get that kind of a bill through but it was aimed at drying up the supply over time. And I, by stopping the manufacture and the sale, but it did not take anyone's weapon. away. And so at that time, it would have diminished the supply and did and was beginning to by the time the we sunset. got to the sunset. Yeah. What are your views on the rene renegotiation of NAFTA? Well, I voted against NAFTA. It was 1996, I think. And I'll tell you, I didn't believe it was a good deal for California. There was the great sucking sound of pushing things into Mexico. And I understand that for Mexico's development to some extent. But there were California industries that were suffering. So I was one of the no votes at that time, and I believe it should be renegotiated now in the modern age, so to speak. And, um, you know, Madam Morris, with all of the uh, um, factories down there, mm -hmm. um, I think this is changing. I think we can create incentives to keep American manufacturing here. I really believe manufacturing matters. Yes. I really need, believe there are people that need production jobs and that we can do very well. And I remember the joint venture well between Toyota and General Motors in Fremont. That's just where the Tesla plant is now. And Tesla is doing very well. They're manufacturing in California. 
I'm disappointed they're making the batteries in uh, Nevada. Nevada, but we'll <laughs> give them that part of it as long as we keep the cars here. And I think we really need to do some work to find out why. And some of it is some of our state laws yes. that keep companies out. I'll just be blunt about that. And they'd rather go to Kentucky. And right. that's where Toyota went. When they left the NUMI plant, they went to Kentucky. Right. Well, you can figure that out. And that's something that I think we've got to take a closer look at here in California to get more manufacturing. And also to bring tech home. And ladies and gentlemen, the tech industry harbors trillions abroad that they don't bring home. And what many of us are looking for is a methodology to have them bring that money home. Um, it's hard to do because they want a 4% tax rate if they bring it home. And you don't, it's not revenue neutral until 15%. And at 15%, it breaks even because there are companies that bring Right. their revenues home Research. and pay the taxes. That's right. So I've had some discussions and I haven't given up yet. I'm gonna keep trying to get something that can bring the money home and that that money then can be used to create jobs, jobs here. In the here. Given what we know about Russian interference and Trump's business pursuits in Russia, what are the key questions the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Judiciary Committee are pursuing? What do okay. you think that we should be I can't pursuing? go into that. But uh, I wish I could, but... Um, the things that... You know, we're looking at documents, which is a nice word for saying evidence. And um, so we've got to, I've got to be very careful about it. And then there's a, um, you see, we're, I told you what we're doing, you know what intelligence is doing. And then Bob Mueller, who incidentally was um, US attorney when I was mayor, so I got Here to know Francisco. him there. And then 10 years head of the FBI is a really superb individual and very talented, has a great team. They are doing a criminal investigation, a counterintelligence investigation. So we'll see what happens there. So the deal signed in Paris on climate was an accord, not a treaty. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to um, how that actually is legitimatized and fits in. So the question is, why were the Paris Climate Accords not submitted to the Congress for approval? Under the Constitution, a treaty needs approval, two-thirds of the Senate. If a treaty is based merely on the word of head of government, how can it not, how can it not be overturned by an incoming president? So well, they're right. It exactly. can be. And that's what, yeah, that, that's what President Trump is uh, talking about, is withdrawing uh, from uh, the Paris Agreement. So it, it was an agreement. Uh, there was no law passed. A president has executive authority. A president can sign executive orders and do things like that agreement. The um, Iran agreement uh, is this same kind of agreement. It's a presidential agreement that was um, uh, okay with the Congress for the time being. Um, and what's happened, and this is part of our problem today, ladies and gentlemen, is this out there so it's very difficult. Uh, this president does not believe that the climate is warming. Um, I strongly disagree. And all you need to do is take a look at a National Geographic magazine and see where they're predicting 
that a huge ice shelf breaks off, which is now rifting, um, and when it does, the seas rise 10 feet. So I think global warming is real. It's happening much faster than the scientists thought. We need to do, we've had three bills on the floor of the Senate in the time I've been there. Not one of them, I think, has gotten more than 38 votes. So we've got a big job to do out there by telling senators and House members and letting them see what's happening. Uh, I believe that what, what's happening in Texas now right. is part of the warming. The seas are warming. And in Antarctica, what's happening is all the huge glaciers are on beds under the ocean. The ocean is warming much faster there than anyone expected. So these glaciers are dropping off into the water. Mm -hmm. And they're huge. They're, they're the size of states. Mm -hmm. And when they drop and melt, it's terrible. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that we could do. The question really is, is it too late? I'd make one other thing. Some predict the climate's gonna warm four to nine degrees. And if it does, there's nothing we can do. We destroy Earth. If we keep the warming one to two degrees, which is still possible, mm -hmm. then we can deal with it. So it isn't hopeless if we do the right thing. And, you know, I've really got to commend Jerry Brown. I yeah. mean, he's put this state in a clean fuel dimension. Yeah. So, so we are no longer in a place of reversing climate change, but we could retard it so that it is still sustainable for life. But That's we have correct. to act now. That's correct. You have to act now. Um, here's a political question. At what point do you think the Republican leaders will definitively turn against President Trump? <laughs> They're a little late by my watch. <laughs> Criticize him publicly and urge his resignation or impeachment. Uh, well... <clears throat> Um, I'd really rather not comment. <laughs> However, I think, um, you know, you all know impeachment, and the House brings the impeachment, and then the Senate sits as a court and votes. At the end, it's a, there's a trial in front of the Senate. And um, kind of been there, done that. It's not... Yeah, we've both done that. Not the greatest thing in the world, that's for sure. Um, look, this man is going to be president, most likely for the rest of this term. I just hope he has the ability to learn and to change. And if he does, he can be a good president. And that's my hope. Um, I have my own personal feelings about it. Yeah, I understand how you feel. I understand how you feel. It seems to me that the Republican House members who are up in 18, uh, all 435 House members are up in 18, it seems to me that they are the first ones that are going to realize that they're going to be in jeopardy under his presidency. And seems to me that that is the first opportunity for people to start to break from him. And, you know, right now, the president effectively has them as an alibi, as long as they stick with him, uh, and, and as long as they're afraid of his base. And, you know, I can say this because I'm not elected anymore. He's effectively the president of his base right now. But he, you know, he is going to be in a position where he has influence over them because some of them are in states where, you know, he won. And, but that, I think, is the tension point, is the 18 election. And now we have a number of Democratic senators up, and 
about a third of the Senate is up, but the whole House is up. So it seems that the commentators are saying that's when the president is going to find himself in a position of, of question with Republicans that are already elected in the House. That's going to be a tough time. Do you expect that Robert Mueller's investigation... Well, and the speaker right. has taken a different road, particularly right. on the Arpaio uh, pardon. That's right. And the speaker has spoken out. When the speaker is of your party and he speaks out critically, I think that's very important and significant. And he's also picking fights with people like Mitch McConnell and, you know, to a certain extent, John McCain and others. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, that's, it's terrible in yeah. that, that he would do that, particularly to McCain, because, um, you know, I, I will tell you all one thing. If you're ever in a fight, John McCain is the person to be there with. We were in a fight on the torture report, and our torture report took six years to complete. And what it showed is that we were torturing and that we shouldn't have been. And it documented the report itself um, is voluminous, 32,000 footnotes, 7,000 pages long. So this long. is the Senate it's Intelligence Committee. Hmm? This was the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is the Senate Intelligence Well, I was chairman. We right. did this, this, this report. And it was John McCain who changed the law in his defense authorization bill in the Armed Services mm -hmm. Committee to prohibit torture. And that was not an easy thing to do. So I have a, you know, a great respect for this. And he really helped me because I was under a lot of criticism for mm -hmm. the report, which to this day, not one fact has been shown to be wrong. And every, we had a lot of people look at it. And we've got a summary that's published that's 500 pages that um, you all can buy for $16. And, uh, and it stood up. And it's right. And it's what we did. And when we do wrong, the greatness of America is we don't hide it, we admit it, and we make the change. This is kind of a personal question, but what is your plan for the next five to 10 years? <laughs> next question, please. So we have uh, three very similar questions. What advice, um, what advice do you have for young professional women today what advice would you give to women who want to make a change in our global climate? And what words of wisdom would you give to my daughters in regards to collaboration in the workplace or any organization? Okay. Women today are so lucky. When I went out for my first job in 1955, women need not apply. That was just a fact. The world has changed, and women are accepted today. Um, they are accepted as surgeons. They are accepted on the Supreme Court. They are accepted as farmers. They are accepted all across this society. It is a great time to be a woman. And women like to solve problems. Women don't have the kind of how to say, you know from the house. <laughs> what the women really concentrate on trying to get something done. Yes. And it's, it's a trademark and it's important. So I would say to young women, get the best education you can and then begin to Think about what you want to do for the rest of your life. Um, work to your long suit, not your short suit. Don't do something because you think some of your parents or somebody else want you to do it. Figure out what you want to do. 
and then figure out that you want to do it for the next 50 or 60 years of your life. Because I believe many of you will have that opportunity. And work toward it. Be a small fish in a big pool, if you can, for a while. Swim around, see what it's like, learn from it. And then maybe run for public office. Maybe run for the school board, the town council. Get your portfolio of expertise. And then the world's your oyster. Then you can organize, you can go out and you can run uh, for the House. You can run for the United States Senate. But women have to develop that portfolio of expertise. And my big disappointment is they don't want to start with a local body and do it well, but they want to go right for the House of Representatives. I think I did I that. <laughs> yeah, but you don't. <laughs> she had lots of experience, I trust did. me. I did. So I was 45 when I ran, I was old enough. <clears throat> So we've come to the time, believe it or not, where we only have time for one last question. Um, and it's a political question. And I think it's uh, something that I hear a lot, you know, at the Safeway, and I hear it at the gym. I don't go to the gym that much. But I, <laughs> but I hear it. And it's, um, you know, why is Trump getting all the airtime? You know, why, why don't I hear the Democrats more? Yeah. Why don't we step up? Why aren't we more vocally in opposition to the Republican madness? This man is president of the United States. That's unlike any other job out there by far. Uh, has enormous powers. And I think what's happened is that he has shown several holes in himself. And I think the press has picked this up and really sees what's been happening right. and following it very closely. Um, I, I was listening to his comments uh, in Texas and generally the press wouldn't run comments at an emergency. They didn't in the big earthquake or the fire, the right. president came out and that wasn't really run. Um, but this is his first big American emergency. And um, I, think, I think we have to have some patience. Um, I do. I mean, it's eight months into the, into the tenure of the presidency, and it's buffeted by being rent asunder. It really is. And we'll have to see if he can forget himself and his feeling about himself enough to be able to really have the kind of empathy and the kind of direction that this country needs. And if it doesn't happen, um, there are things that could happen that I don't think would be responsible for me to begin to speak about here, but it's eight months into it. The record's going to be clear. People are going to make a decision. The one thing that he needs to do, in my view, is bring this nation together. together. And he hasn't done that. And that's a big problem because when this country divides, you have what you had in Charlottesville. And you had that terrible response to Charlottesville. And that's not what we need that's or right. want. Well, let's all thank Senator Dianne Feinstein. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, we also want to thank everyone here, as well as our audience on radio, television, and the internet. I'm Ellen Tauscher, and now the thank meeting you. of the Commonwealth Club of thank California, you very much. the place thank where you you're much. in the know, is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club. 
airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org.